The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you for saying kind things about the book. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to write it. You asked me why this book and why now. Uh, why this book is I have been fascinated by Asia my whole life. I, as a child, my parents were diplomats, and I actually lived in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, right at the bottom of the Karakoram Highway, leading to the wild west of China, and near the disputed border of India. So you can say it's it's in my heritage, in a way. Um, for two decades now, I've been traveling to China and India. I worked with both of their governments when I was at the U.S. State Department, and now, of course, I help U.S. companies do business there, as well as other places around the world. And I'm just struck by the political discourse in this country. <laughs> to my view, China and India are going to have a dramatic impact on us here in the United States now, over the next decade, not 20, 30 years from now. It's starting now. And when you read our papers and listen to the news, we seem alternately terrified by China or argue that their economy is collapsing and it's all over for them. And we largely ignore India. But when you look a decade out, maybe a little more than a decade out, our companies are going to be selling to these two countries. I don't have to tell you that. You're all China experts here in the room. There are going to be three billion people between them in those two countries. The two largest middle classes on earth. India will have 100 million more people than China at that time. And By 2030. By 2030. And we just can't solve the world's biggest problems without them, especially climate change. As it is, a smog cloud from Asia comes all the way to California, where I live. By 2030, China and India will be the first and third largest carbon emitters. India is the fastest growing carbon emitter amongst large economies. So we have to get our relationships with these folks just right. And that's why I wrote the book. India, when you mentioned climate change, China and the United States have led. India has lagged. Why? Let me back up a little bit. And it's a good question. So India's, um, India lags 20 years behind China in its economic reforms. And we talk a lot about the horse race between China and India. But this is a much poorer country that is still focusing on its on growing and on getting its economic relations with the rest of the world quite well. When I tour around China, many of you have done this as well, you see these coal fields that are, you know, 30 football fields in length, make the monster mining trucks look like tiny toys. You can see that China is willing to do anything that it takes to grow. But at the same time, talk to Chinese people, and they're fed up with pollution. You spend a lot more time there than I do, I think. And I think the Chinese government is really genuine in its desire to clean up its act. India, there isn't a huge public outcry about pollution yet, although it's beginning to start. 13 of the 20 most polluted cities in the world are actually in India, not in China. Um, and it's not just air pollution, it's water pollution. When you go to 
the holy city of Varanasi on the Ganges. There are corpses floating in the water and pilgrims bathing right next to those corpses. India has a long way to go on environmental stewardship and on climate change. Having said all that, it's understandable that they're a little bit slower, and especially that the old guard of Indian diplomats wants to put economic growth first, and they say, not without reason, that even though their carbon emissions are growing very quickly, they're still only one-tenth what American per capita carbon emissions are. So that's why they're a little farther behind, but they're, I think they're catching up pretty quickly. They're getting with the program. You have this great chapter on which you call Half the Sky, uh, which is obviously about the role of women in these societies. Um, obviously, Chairman Mao made equality a basic tenet of the Chinese Communist Party, gender equality. Um, and India, which is a democracy, seems to still have this extraordinarily bad treatment of women. How do you kind of describe to us why, where that's coming from, and what the future looks like? And you talk about kind of the education of women in China as being a fundamental part of China's economic development, that that was kind of a foundation for that development. You describe some of the workers who need that education being women. (laughs) India is unfortunately one of the worst democracies in which to be a woman. And it's a real blight on the country. If you talk about it in cold, hard economic terms, if Indian women were full participants in the economy, uh, the OECD estimates that their GDP growth would be 2%, their GDP would be 2% higher a year. That's then they would have overtaken China in terms of GDP growth. And it's not a matter of the right laws being on the books. India is a democracy. Um, Its constitution is very pro-women and pro-minorities. There are all the right laws on maternity leave and on sexual harassment, largely, on sexual harassment and on domestic violence. But especially for the lower end of the social spectrum, the lower castes and the poor, they're almost not enforced because the state just isn't strong enough or sometimes willing to enforce them. And what's happened, in kind of beautiful Indian style, is that sometimes people take the law into their own hands. So there's this great group, I tell their story in the book, called the Gulabi Gang of women, um, of low-income, lower-caste women, that had finally had enough. So now they go around, they all wear hot pink saris, and they carry sticks. And when someone in the village is accused of having beaten his wife, they go beat up on him. (laughs) It's a very Indian solution to a difficult problem. Um, There's a lot left to be done, but, you know, comparing again with China, the communist system in China, we we like to complain about the communist system, but the communists actually did a lot of great things for women. Um, There is, I think, a 78% participation rate of women in the workforce in China compared to 58% here only 25% in India. Some of that is changing a little bit as China becomes more of a market economy, but by and large, uh, China is not a bad place to be a woman, especially compared to India. What's the literacy rate among women in India? I don't have the statistics right off the top of my head, but it's much lower than men. Mm -hmm. India, China has not 
during the communist period had a woman leader. Zhang Qing, you can argue, maybe was a leader for was close to a leader. Uh, but India has. Why could Indira Gandhi not have done more for women in India? Right. It is one of those interesting anachronisms. Um, in India, not all, but many of the women political leaders, and there have been some very strong women political leaders, are part of a political dynasty. So Indira Gandhi, of course, was the daughter of Nehru. Sonia Gandhi is her daughter-in-law. Um, many of the some of the women that are the chief ministers, which is the equivalent to the governor of the states, have done it all by themselves. Um, so there is this strange irony that in India, women are more prominent in politics and much less prominent in the business world compared to China, where women are quite prominent in the business world. 30 million Chinese female entrepreneurs. Um, I think there are more self-made female billionaires in China than anywhere else on earth. Some of the biggest, most iconic Chinese companies are run by or run by women or their senior management team is women. So I, I can't explain it, but it is an interesting juxtaposition. Talk about India-China relations. Obviously, they have had, had fought a border war. They continue to have skirmishes. What's kind of driving each country's um, policies in their relationship with each other. It's not, you know, do the Indians just see it as China's allied with Pakistan, therefore can never be their friend, or India's allied with the United States, therefore China says they can never be their friend? What's going on here? Right. When I talk to student audiences about this, I say China and India are frenemies, a little bit of how we sometimes are. Uh, a decade ago, when I was in the U.S. State Department, we would talk to the Indian diplomats about China, and they were quite sanguine about the relationship, weren't really worried. That's all changed. And I think what's changed is India has a similar relationship with China than we do. It's their most important trading partner, but the balance of trade is all in China's favor rather than in India's. Um, they have to get along. They have, I mean, unlike with us, there is a contested border in the high Himalayas where they, the two famously fought a war in 1962. Uh, and now that border is increasingly agitated. So far, both sides have strict orders not to shoot. But if you go on YouTube, it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> You, there are all these videos of Chinese and Indian soldiers basically throwing punches at each other and then videotaping the whole thing on their smartphones <laughs> to put on YouTube. So they're worried. Increasingly, as China increases its military power, radiates power kind of south and to its west, it's coming into contact with India. The Indians are very worried that Chinese submarines are sneaking through their waters they're worried about the ports that China is helping to build all around India, in places as disparate as they started one in Bangladesh, there was one in Sri Lanka, there's the famous one at Gwadar in Pakistan. These are all, the Chinese say, intended to be commercial ports. They're not military ports. But, you know, it's a good place to refuel and take new provisions on board if you're the Chinese Navy. So the Indians have really woken up, and they're quite 
And I think the big difference is when I was in government, you would, for example, never have a joint exercise between the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. Everyone would have thought that that is much too provocative. Now no one talks about it anymore. We, we want to have those exercises in a routine way. So they're worried. Should we be worried about a flare-up in Sino-Indian relations? It's always hard to predict the future. I think right now that border, those border scuffles I'm telling you about, no one really wants a flare-up. The Indians don't and the Chinese don't. So I think that will stay contained. I think the submarines in the Indian Ocean are more problematic. And if you had an accident that was mismanaged, yeah, you could have a real problem. But do I think they're going to war anytime soon? I don't think so, and I hope not. What is the role of the Dalai Lama and Tibet in that relationship? That's a very good question. I actually gave a talk on Friday, and and, uh, one of the one of the representatives of the Dalai Lama was there. And we talked about it afterwards. I think it is one small thorn in the side of the relationship, but not the most important one. I mean, this has been an issue since the 1950s, when, as you know, the Dalai Lama fled to India, and he's been living there ever since peacefully. He's not making any problems. Um, The Indians aren't going to kick him out. But all of the other issues I talked about, I think, are more important in the relationship than, and more worrisome to the Indians than that one. What about terrorism? The, um, the, the, the Indians have serious issues with, with um, actually Muslim terrorism, and the Chinese do too. Are they cooperating on that? Is this something that they can't cooperate on because Pakistan's relationship with India? Yeah, you would think they would. Uh, what hampers cooperation on terrorism is that China, of course, is Pakistan's great friend, the all-weather friend, the relationship that's taller than mountains and sweeter than honey or whatever the slogans are. So um, India is, I think, hesitant to do more to cooperate with China on those issues because they're worried that any intelligence they share will be shared with the Pakistanis. And it's a permanent... And they also, when I talk to some of the Indian military leaders, they believe, whether rightfully or not, that Pakistan is allowed to hide because it has a special relationship with China. And so they don't have to do things like turn over the mastermind of the Mumbai attacks because they get a free pass because they're under China's wing. What happened when uh, Xi Jinping went to uh, India for the visit ultimately with Modi, then then returned? There was a flare-up on the Chinese-Indian border. What was that? What happened there? I've never been clear. Was it just a mistake? Was it somebody putting their thumb in somebody's eye? What went on there? Well, as with many of these things, no one really knows. This is one of the fisticuffs that I was telling you about that you can look up on YouTube. And one of those scuffles, those little skirmishes, where no one was killed, but still not great to have Indian and Chinese soldiers going at it, happened right when Xi Jinping was in Delhi giving a speech with Prime Minister Modi. Obviously, it doesn't make anyone look good. And, you know, like all these things, you were a lifelong student of China, you don't know if it was intentional to send a signal. 
if it was pure accident or if it was someone in the PLA who thought this might be a good time. It, it's a little bit like when my business partner, when Bob Gates was in China and they tested one of their big new weapon systems. Yes, they rolled out um, the stealth fighter. That's right. And that was, Bob thinks it was quite clear that Hu Jintao at the time didn't know. Yes, I think that's correct. But Nor did the chief of staff at UAE. According to people who were at that, I mean, this was when he was there and he was following, you know, really was a pro-constructive engagement visit that they rolled out this fighter, which was kind of like a thumb in his eye, but it apparently was simply the day that they had to do it, nobody bothered to check. Right. Well, and let's say, you know, many of us here in the room have worked for the American government. We're not always so perfect at that signaling either. <laughs> and we're not always very good at coordinating between our different departments in Washington. So you can see it just being a mistake as well. Is the Indi- You know, the, we always, when we talk about the Chinese government, one of the things that that makes it difficult to deal with at times for those who are supporting constructive engagement is the silos of the bureaucracies, that they don't communicate with each other. So literally, when you have an issue that touches five bureaucracies, you don't go to one bureaucracy. You, as the foreigner, actually have to go to all five bureaucracies and almost negotiate a settlement among them, which is the settlement with you. That's is right. that true in India? Or you have to take it all the way up to all the, the Or you can go to Xi Jinping, right. exactly. which is not you so easy. You go to the top of the leading group, which is difficult. Yeah, is that the same in India? Um, I think it's a little bit better. It's more like our system where the interaction between the different branches of government, man, it's imperfect. <laughs> and we try, but often it's on person-to-person relations. I think the the bigger issue you have with the Indian government is not do the different ministries talk to each other, but right now, as I think all of you know, Modi swept to power just about two years ago. Huge landslide for the BJP, which is the center-right party. Um, And he installed a lot of ministers that are young, really go-getters, and not experienced in Delhi politics. So sometimes I'll go into meetings, and the minister is saying stuff we all want to hear. <laughs> We're going to do the right thing on climate change and there's going to be so much high-tech cooperation and we're going to slowly diminish the amount of coal we use for our electricity. And then you see the bureaucrat sitting next to him sort of stone-faced. And so you know that the bureaucracy in India is not going to move quite as quickly as Modi and his team would want to have happen. It feels a lot like Washington, too. <laughs> what do the Indians think now about, about you know, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, about the, the new Silk Road, the One Belt, One Road? What's their, are they fearful of kind of increasing Chinese influence in their neighborhood? I think it depends on who you talk to, and they are of two minds about it. And frankly, as am I. So... All of you are experts, so I don't need to tell you that the Chinese are investing an enormous amount in infrastructure in Asia. Uh, the show-stopping first announcement was announcing $46 billion uh, in aid to, in aid, actually loans, to Pakistan to finish the Gwadar port on the Arabian Sea, which, you know, this was a fishing village 10 years ago. 
nothing. Cinder block houses, dust in the streets, ringed by desert and the Arabian Sea. Now it is a modern, spectacular port that the Chinese have just inaugurated. And they're now also building the highway that will go all the way over the mountains into western China, a railway line to go with that, lots of coal mines, lots of energy infrastructure projects. So obviously, when they're giving all that largesse to Pakistan, it worries the Indians. When China is doing that with other countries in the region, not so much. And I think the, I actually think the Indians were right. They were one of the first to join China's Asia um, Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a um, which is a new, it's essentially an answer to the Asia Development Bank and the World Bank. China is leading the effort, but they have invited other people to join. The United States, um, quite spectacularly, decided not to, and I thought we were absolutely wrong. That's what I was going to ask, were they wrong? Yeah. I you have agreement at this table. Yeah, <laughs> and I think actually probably in this crowd as well. <laughs> um, but... You know, this is, we keep talking about, when I was in government, we talked about China coming onto the governing board of the world, being a responsible stakeholder. This is an example of China doing that, right? China can make all of these investments all by itself. But yet, they've hired a guy, whenever you see the CEO of the AIIB touring around, he strikes all the right notes, right? Clean, green, and something else. Yeah. <laughs> and he wants... Influence. And in perfect English. And in perfect English. He wants to be better than the World Bank, which has been far from perfect in investing around the world. He wants other people's input. So this is the first time the Chinese are voluntarily constraining their own power to be multilateral, and we sit on the outside. I don't quite understand why we chose right. to do that. Why did you say you were of two minds? You, well, you, you started and you said you were of two minds. I'm, I hear you... Just saying you're supportive. The AIIB, we should have joined. The One Belt, One Road initiative, on the one hand, great. We need a lot of infrastructure in in Asia. It's going to make the asphalt smoother. It's going to improve trade. This is a good thing for everyone. On the negative side, um, $46 billion in aid to Pakistan means that it's more difficult for the United States to have leverage. It makes the small countries of Asia beholden to China. And if you have a, an antagonistic view between the U.S. and China, that's something that you worry about. You think we've been successful with Pakistan with our leverage? No. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we losing here? <laughs> that's, that, I think, is the... Is the question we haven't gotten very far with all of the aid that we've we've provided? Do you think, as we, as this Indian fear of kind of China increases, and I, and and you distinguish between kind of the the economic and the strategic, as and the strategic is on the increase because of China's um, increasing assertion of outside of its borders. Um, do you think? 10, 15 years from now, we'll be talking about a U.S.-India alliance? Is that something that could ever happen? Only if we mishandle our relations in Asia. I think that would be a defeat mm-hmm. for the following reason. If you take the argument that Trump and others are making to their logical conclusion, China is 
raping the United States. Outrageous statement. We need to slap a 45% tariff on them. If you look at that, you're actually going to do tariffs, you know, they might retaliate. People don't just sit still when you have things like that happen. It means that our military relations will get more and more difficult. It means that China will probably get closer to Russia. Russia will be a junior partner in that alliance, I think, but they'll get closer. They'll get closer to Pakistan. And India will be driven more and more into the arms of the United States and the West. So I think if in 10 years we have an alliance, a formal alliance, I don't think the Indians want that. I don't think we, we, we want it. But if in 10 years we have a formal alliance between India and the United States, that's a mistake because it means we've created two competing blocks in Asia. What that's do you think about the rebalance? Well, you know, it was it's, it's, not, it's, it's not when you're in government. <laughs> I know you've left government by the time the rebalance was born, but what but do you I'm think about it? I'm friends with Kurt, and it was a good effort. Um, it was So you kind of think str- strength, well, all right, forget the name. We all agree. It was, well, it was named Pivot, and then, and then it had a name change, Rebalance. Exactly. Um, but it, part of it is about strengthening our existing alliances. Yes. You support that? Uh, I do to an extent. So the argument I make in the book and the policy part of the book is you've got to be subtle, and this has to be a long-term policy across administrations. We're not very good at that. (laughs) Just our structure isn't very good at that. So that doesn't mean you give China a pass when there are things that we can't accept. Like, we should keep protecting freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. We should keep pushing back when there is stealing, cyber stealing of our intellectual property. All of those things we must continue to do. But you must really make sure you have an open hand. And I think inadvertently, because I don't think this is what Kurt or (coughs) Secretary Clinton or President Obama wanted, inadvertently the rebalance to Asia took on a threatening tone. Because, and this again is, I can make fun of our own government because I was in it, because the military is just faster at doing things sometimes than the rest of us. So the military rebalanced right away. (laughs) TPP isn't going so well, last time I checked. And I would say, you and I have had a separate conversation about this. I absolutely think TPP is the right thing to do. I pity poor Mike Froman having to be out there alone pitching the darn thing. Uh, We should pass it, but I think we should do a lot more to try to get both India and China, who, by the way, are both on the outside of TPP, into more of the trade agreements. TPP is too high standards, and we sort of said... We're going to set the standard here. If you want to jump off on, on the cliff with us, you can do it. But, you know, if not, we'll see you later. I think we need to do a little bit more to bring China and India along. So I assume after ratification, you'd be in favor of kind of entering into negotiations with both India and China with an agreement that had, you know, five years, 10 years, 15-year phase-in provisions. Yes. So if there are provisions they couldn't meet, they'd be given some period of time to then Absolutely. comply. Yeah. Yeah which I think makes sense. So you, I take it, given what you're saying, is you think we should not... Well, what should we do about the South China Seas then? You say when China... You know, we have to protect our right to navigate. And the Chinese are building islands. What are we What are we supposed to do in saying they've got territorial limits on those islands? And China has a different view from us on what you can do within, you know, 12 to 200 
nautical miles of an island. So what are we supposed to do? How, how do we push back? I think right now we have our policy on that just about right. We're doing pretty consistent <laughs> drive-bys, freedom of navigation exercises. Or there are other jargony Don't terms. call them drive-by. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. I won't bore you with the with the military terms. That is the right thing to do. As much as possible, those should be multilateral, and they haven't been. And I think that's mostly because the other people are hiding behind us, not our fault. And they need to be consistent. We were doing a good job now, but we stopped for three or four years. And why did we stop? Uh, we had a different Secretary of Defense. <laughs> We've had a lot of movement in that job. Over the past. It's not the president that makes that decision? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but this is being videotaped. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, slow and consistent and steady policies. So if I'm the PLA, I'm a little bit confused when you say on the one hand, this, this won't stand, but then you don't do anything about it for three years. And then you say, no, 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 we're going to go in and we're going to do freedom of navigation exercises again. So we have to be consistent. We have to be multilateral. And at the same time, as you and I spoke about offline, as much as you can have, the hardest part of the relationship between the U.S. and China, I think, is the military piece. Because we just there's very little trust there. There's very little to build on. But as much as we can manage that relationship, prevent an accident. There are great talks, I understand, going on right now on preventing accidents at sea. That may sound boring, but that is important stuff because especially these days, um, it, during the Cold War, there were a lot of accidents between the Soviet Union and the United States, but they were handled behind the scenes and quietly because you didn't have journalists tailing people <laughs> and you had a direct line of communication between the two senior level governments. Now, everything becomes a political issue like this because it's on media, it's on social media, and then it's very hard for the political side to back down. So the more we can avoid an accident, manage the situation, I think the more likely we're going to get to a good resolution. So I take it you don't support putting um, CNN camera crews on EP3s or, or New York Times reporters on destroyers? Well, I think that's maybe one where we could hold off. <laughs> yes. As much as I'm for more foreign policy coverage by the media. <laughs> that's right. That's that's not the best way to increase foreign policy coverage. Well, we have a terrific audience today of both some India specialists and some um, China specialists. So let me open it for some questions. Do we have a microphone or? Larry? Should I wait for the mic? Yeah. Be good, because then it gets recorded. My name is Larry Bridwell. I teach MBA students at Pace University, many of them who are Chinese and Indian. And I noticed, uh, I read the first chapter of your book, and you talked about the contrast between the tension at the Chinese-U.S. reception in the state of Washington and the joyful uh, contrast in Silicon Valley when the prime minister came. Um, I've seen some recent reports that under Prime Minister Modi, and my young students love Modi, that um, they are going to electrify every Indian village by 2020, and they have a website which shows the progress on a daily basis. 
And with the universal ID, they've set up, I think, 300 million new bank accounts for low-income people. Now, I say all of this because it is possible you could see huge growth economically in India over the next 10 years, which is market-based and democratic. And if China goes into long-term stagnation for all of, because of all the difficulties they're having, it's possible you could have a vibrant economic growth and a vibrant relationship between the U.S. and India that could make China look bad. So uh, what uh, would you forecast in view of all of these uh, bottoms-up initiatives that are taking place throughout India? It's mm-hmm. a very good question. The... I think Modi's economic initiatives are great. I also think that he came in with people had completely unrealistic expectations of him. And so I I think the Indian economy won't perform quite as well as Modi and his team would hope. And I think the Chinese economy won't perform as badly as our headlines about the doomed dragon would have you believe. So, and here's why I say that. So, you're absolutely right about the electrification of, of villages. They are doing a great job, but there's a lot of work to be done, and governments before them have claimed that they are electrifying all the villages of India. In fact, there was this statistics that they all claim to be electrified, but through graft or through other things, you know, the last mile never quite got connected. Um, the bank accounts, so let me say a word about this because you brought it up. India, actually under the previous government, under the Manmohan Singh government, started a biometric ID program. This may seem really esoteric, but it is hugely important because unlike in the U.S. where everyone has a social security number and an identity, and that identity is linked to are you alive or dead, are you ill, are you receiving pensions, are you receiving social security, in India, there are no records, right? So they, a few years ago... The, one of the founders of Infosys, one of the great Indian technology firms, said, I'm going to do this with 100 of my best engineers. Indian government, leave me alone. I'll do this for you. But they have done, in I think something record time, like six years, they created this whole system. They have taken the 10 fingerprints and the two iris scans of over a billion Indians. Imagine our government doing something like that. They've done it all at something like, it costs something like $3.80 per person. And now each Indian who voluntarily signed up for this has a biometric ID. And instead of, for example, there's one story I tell in the book. Um, If you are a poor farmer in rural India, India has a scheme where you are guaranteed work for 100 days a year. So you're building roads and digging ditches and things, and you get paid. Not very much, but you get a little bit of money. Well, this guy, Ram, whose story I tell, who I interviewed folks who had worked with him, used to have to, to collect his wages, he'd have to take one day off of work. He'd have to ride a bus three hours to the nearest town. He'd have to wait in line for the nearest bureaucrat to hand him his money. Maybe he'd have to pay the guy a little bit in, action, in order to actually get his money. And so he was getting less than 60 cents on the dollar of what he was owed. With the biometric ID system, you go to your local corner store. The guy at the corner store has a 
a smartphone, put your fingerprints in it, and you get your 500 rupees or whatever you're owed. So it's a huge benefit for the poor. It helps income inequality. It helps to tackle graft from the bottom up. And it, is, it has been a huge, I mean, really a spectacular success. I think, unfortunately, India has so far to go that that alone isn't going to launch them into permanently higher growth rates than China, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Bill. There we go, Bill. Thank you. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I'll go first, I guess. Sure. Uh, you said... Please identify yourself. Henry Antonin, I work at Marcus Millichap. I used to live and studied in both India and China. Great. Um, you mentioned you don't think, or you, at least you don't prescribe the next 10 years America have an alliance with India. Would you see before that China, or rather Japan and India, both to counter China having an alliance between each other and if not an alliance, what do you see as the future between those two countries to counter China? Right. Good question. It's very hard to predict anything a decade out, so never say never. Um, India and Japan have certainly gotten a lot closer over the last few years, just like India and the U.S. have gotten a lot closer. The Indians, due to their history of colonialism and then after independence under Nehru and after they were really prided themselves of being the center of the non-aligned movement, which meant that India is the representative of the downtrodden around the world, and we're not going to get into these great power politics. We're not going to ally with either, at the time, the U.S. or the Soviet Union. That generation of diplomats is slowly retiring, but that's still a very important strand in Indian foreign policy. And so a decade ago, when I was at the State Department, you wouldn't even say the word alliance. I don't think we really want that. I don't think India really wants that. We call each other strategic partners, and that's probably close enough because a formal alliance with India, to the, to the extent that we have it with NATO or that we have it with Japan, uh, where if an attack on one means that you're involved, I don't think either India or the U.S. is ready for that, and I think Japan and India are probably not ready for that. Here, Bill, and then Herb, and then back to... Um, yeah, I'm Bill Prince. I uh, with Dorsey and Whitney and uh, have done a lot of work in China, uh, not very much in India. But I have been fascinated by the Modi reforms. And how successful would you say that uh, his government has been in terms of getting on top of the corruption pro problems that everyone you know, decries when you're trying to do business in India? The word on the street is palms have to be greased and things are just delayed. Is there progress being made on that front? There is, but not quite enough. So India, I don't remember the exact ranking, but it's just about where China is in corruption. It's sort of the second third when you look at the Transparency International Index. Not great. A lot of work to do. Um, Modi came in on a clean government platform. And from what I hear when I talk to folks in Delhi, one piece of it is actually better. So the really close link between the big Indian industrial conglomerates and Delhi has been broken a little bit. They need to get in line and get, you know, there's more transparent government contracting, a lot of the licensing is online. That part is getting better by all, by everything I hear. But there's 
the Adhar scheme, the biometric ID scheme I talked about, that was actually started under the previous government, but that's been a huge benefit, anti-graft benefit from the bottom up. But boy, there's a lot of work to do. I mean, when I was in government, I was stunned, you know, as an American government official, you can't accept anything, like not even a pizza. And I go into one of these ministries and a guy tries to involve me in a kickback scheme. And I just sort of sat there, <laughs> naive and blinking, and so he gave up pretty quickly. But, you know, it's everywhere, just like it's everywhere in China. And I think because of their different systems, they've approached it in a different way. In China, it's been all top-down. Wang Shishan, you all know the, the China story. India, the whole impetus has been bottom-up. So in 2011... A guy named Anna Hazari, who is, you know, he's an elderly gentleman, big spectacles, looks a little bit like Gandhi, started what he calls a neo-Gandhian anti-corruption revolution. He went on hunger strikes. Hundreds of people started falling, and then thousands of people, and suddenly the streets of the major cities are filled. And they called for an independent commission that would quickly investigate graft cases. They didn't get it at the national level. They got it within Delhi. But so there's finally a public movement afoot to do more. Modi's been okay, but there are a lot of other things that you would do if you were going to do it right. You would set up this independent commission. You'd have a real education system that emphasizes ethics. You'd do a little bit more of what the Chinese are doing in spades, which is to arrest the most corrupt of the government officials. And they have a, they have a long way to go, just like China does. Herb. Herbert Levin, um, I have uh, two questions. Uh, the um, nuclear agreement with India, which some of us thought would, was a big mistake and a disaster and would never work, uh, we turned out to be right. And even though <laughs> Burns goes around still defending it, um, would you agree, not that you made a mistake, but that it's time to withdraw and instead of leaving it out there as if we believed, you know, someday the Indians will uh, start to believe the sun is rising in the West. That's the first question. Should we withdraw from this agreement, which some of us thought we never should have entered into? Okay. Second is that uh, the U.S. correctly refused to give Modi uh, visas uh, because he was a crook and a human rights violator. Then the Indians uh, never elected him. I mean, he, it's a parliamentary system, and he got a plurality, and so he gets received as the head of uh, government of a large country, so we receive him. But according to all of the uh, human rights organizations in India, uh, that situation has deteriorated, so he hasn't uh, changed uh, at all there. Uh, so I don't see any reason to be terribly polite uh, about about Mr. Moody. Um, we are in New York City, uh, where the Indian government uh, defended a lying Indian consular official to everybody's embarrassment, finally threw her out, and we had to raise money privately to get her maid's family out of India because she was being harassed for having protested the slavery in New York City. Um, so things go on normally. I mean, none of these things require a war. Uh, as you may know, the U.S. has a law where we have a human rights commission, uh, 
the Chinese admitted them to uh, investigate the human rights situation in China. The Saudi Arabians admitted them to investigate the human rights situation in Saudi Arabia. The Indians wouldn't admit them because they don't give a damn what the U.S. thinks about the human rights situation. So uh, my, my feeling is that in you know, 10 years or 100 years, things may get better, but I don't see anything very promising going on at the moment in Indian-American relations, putting aside our Secretary of Defense who wants to sell more weapons. He's, that's a problem for us. Uh, but uh, how do you view th this? Putting aside 10 years and 100 years, the yeah. last few years. Great. Thank you, Herb. And Herb, by the way, is a 40-year veteran of the U.S. State Department. It told me right before this that he actually was in India in 1962 right. during the China-India War. So we're really grateful to have you here. Thank we, you. We, we interviewed the Assam Rifles, and they knew they'd been in Tibet. That's right. Yeah, they knew they'd been across the border. So they didn't stay there very long. Um, let me start with the civilian nuclear deal. So, yes, some people have criticized this deal. I was one of the negotiators of the India civilian nuclear deal, <laughs> and I continue to maintain that this was absolutely the right thing to do for the following reasons. It's a, it's a very complicated deal, but um, the basic gist is this. India never joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It was a, it, it chose to stay out of the treaty. It then created a very small nuclear weapons program, which was mostly as a defense against China, okay, and secondarily a defense against Pakistan. They have never leaked their nuclear secrets to anyone, unlike China and Pakistan and many other places. So they have been, by and large, very good stewards of their own nuclear technology. Embedded within the NPT were two big agreements. One that the five named nuclear powers would go to zero. That's not gone very well for us so far. And two, that if people gave up their nuclear weapons, we would be willing to give them, help them with civilian nuclear technology. So when I was in government, we made an exception, and it was a big exception for India, and it was a big gamble. We said, we know you have a few nuclear weapons, 30 or so, not very many. We're going to put that to one side, and we're going to help you with your civilian nuclear technology anyways for the following reasons. We want to be a strategic partner with India. That was the most important thing. I'll say more about that in a second. For me, as a young State Department employee, the biggest reason that we didn't talk about very much, but was that India has to find a way to create electricity for its nearly 1.3 billion people. And it has to do so, it can't do so only with coal. You have to find a way to do it in a carbon-free way. And the Indians have this very optimistic view of how much nuclear power they're going to have. If you divide that by three, you're still saving more CO2 in the atmosphere than the Kyoto Protocol in all of Europe. So the scale is massive. So for me, it was an environmental problem. And third, what it actually did, and I think the big success of this deal, even though it hasn't been implemented yet due to some liability issues that we won't get into here, the biggest success has been, this is exactly what I talk about in the book, in order to bring countries along, you have to practice cooperation. It's not automatic. 
So when we entered into these negotiations, there was huge distrust between the American and the Indian bureaucracies. And man, this was tough. I mean, I was in India 12 times, sweltering conference rooms in Delhi, and we would negotiate and there would be, on the Indian side, would be some officials who really wanted this to happen and who were negotiating in good faith. And then next to them were sitting other Indian officials who thought America was really untrustworthy and we didn't want to do anything with America. So invariably, we'd come to an impasse, we'd stop the negotiation, and they'd say, go see some museums in Delhi. (laughs) I've seen a lot of museums in Delhi. (laughs) And then they would fight amongst themselves. And what happened in that is that we learned how to work together and the Indians learned how to overcome their distrust of America because we made this big lift. And it unlocked a huge amount of cooperation in other areas like in counterterrorism, on the military side, on economic things. So I think imperfect, difficult deal, not perfect to defend from a pure nuclear nonproliferation perspective, but on balance, absolutely the right thing to do. Your second question was on human rights. India has human rights problems. So does China. So does Pakistan. So do a lot of other countries we deal with around the world. That doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye to them or that you defend them. Our ambassador, Rich Verma, in India has actually been quite vocal on some of what he sees as some of the crackdown on nonprofits in India. Um, And, you know, there are some problems. Uh, there have been more attacks on Muslims since Modi came to power. Overall, for a country with over 100 different languages, with five major religions, <laughs> a very, very diverse country, um, you have much less violence than you would expect. And they, so we are dealing with India because we want to and we must, but we're not being quiet about the human rights concerns, and I think that strikes the right balance. William Janis, I'm an adjunct professor at Ford War. A uh, question to uh, follow up. Uh, with respect to India, if it grows anywhere as fast as, say, China had in the prior 30 years, I guess as Modi would like to, and I think he wants to increase the industrial output to replicate China's percentage to, to its economy. Um, and presumably, it still has to be done with fossil fuels. If that's the case, how realistic is the Paris Global Climate Accord in terms of the effectiveness to cap on two degrees Celsius? And I know that there's the ability to revisit it, but do you think that it, it becomes a moot point? Uh, and is there anything that can be done? You are absolutely right. I think if India manages to become a manufacturing powerhouse like China was 20 years ago, there's, you know, climate change becomes irreversible. However, I think India won't become a manufacturing powerhouse like China did 20 years ago for the following reasons. Larry asked about the economy. There are a lot of good things happening in India's economy, but its democratic system constrains how quickly Modi can push through these reforms. It's more like the U.S. So they've done a lot. They've made it put a lot of stuff online. They made it easier to get licenses. But all of the big reforms that would actually make the Make in India campaign, the manufacturing push that Modi's doing work, they have been stalled, both because the BJP doesn't have a majority in the upper house of parliament, 
uh, that's one problem. And the most important problem is that a lot of these issues, how quickly firms can get land, what the labor policies are, can you hire and fire people, where do you get environmental clearances, all of those things that make it quick and easy to build factories, those are issues that are dealt with at the state level in India under their um, division of powers. So actually, in some cases, a chief minister, the equivalent to a governor of a big state, has more power than the central government in Delhi. And that's why when I talk to investors who are investing in India, I always say, pick the state, don't pick the country. India is huge. There are a few states where you can really do a great job and you can really invest. But that's not the case at one last question, right here. My name is Suresh Dishani, and uh, I run a fund in, that invests in India and also in the U.S. So just to give you some context. The, uh, the question I have is, what, in your view, would be the growth rates in India, going by that the manufacturing is not going to kick in, but the services and the tech tech businesses are kicking in really strong in India. And what can we anticipate in terms of actual uh, growth areas in India as opportunities for America and India to collaborate? I should ask you this question <laughs> since clearly you're doing this every day. Growth rates, as you know, are notoriously hard to predict. The economists I talk to for the book and talk to every day think somewhere between 5 and 8% is kind of what you can expect for the next decade or so. That's not China in the last decade, but it's not bad. Um, the, the sectors that are doing quite well in India, as you must know yourself, are the ones where there is less government involvement. So the reason IT raced ahead and outsourcing raced ahead and telecoms has done really well and, and the airlines, you know, after the, after the first opening of the Indian economy 20 years ago, suddenly there were all these great Indian airlines. They have done well because there's been benign neglect by the government. Anything that requires a lot of government input, mining, <laughs> infrastructure, all of those things are just, it's just much more difficult to get things through, get things passed, even much more difficult than it is. But for my clients doing business in China and India, you really see a difference when they're in a heavily regulated sector. And so I think those are going to continue to lag behind. We have run out of time. I know there are a few hands still up. But um, I think today's discussion has given you a flavor of what a wonderful book this is. So please join me in thanking Anya for this wonderful book.